If you have your Bibles with you, would you please open them to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 21. We are beginning Holy Week today, and we are, we are having a Palm Sunday message. Uh, it's not something that we do every year. Oftentimes, we just keep going in the books that we're in, and uh, we just really felt and prayerfully felt this year that, no, you know, we need to start Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life with the story of Palm Sunday. And so that's what we're doing this morning. I'm going to read the first 11 verses in Matthew 21. We will be looking at a lot of Scripture. We're going to dive in right away. There's lots to unpack here today. So I'll read the passage, and then I'll pray one more time, and we'll dive in. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, once again, uh, Father, this is a, a familiar story, it's a familiar text from 2,000 years ago approximately. And so, Father, Holy Spirit, I pray today, would you, would you bring this alive? Would you bring this to our present, but also take us into that present so that we can, we, can, we can sense and see for ourselves what Jesus did, but also what he saw. And yet he kept going and going and going. So, Father, we thank you for this text and for this day, and we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bless us and encourage us as we look into this today. Pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Sermon title for today is The Arrival of Our King. I was thinking, you know, like we went through that series on prayer, and we looked at Our Father, right? Um, kingdom come, daily bread, and, and, and forgive us and deliver us. And then, you know, th- this is Our King. And when I say our king as a title for this message, I, I'm not just talking about the, the holy and righteous people who are Christians. Are we holy and righteous yet? Well, he's working on us, isn't he? I'm talking about our king. He's the king of this earth, of this planet, of this world, of the cosmos. Amen? We declare him as that. Hope to see three things today. Maybe some surprises. Number one, not the meek and mild king. Oh, really? Number two, the expect, not the expected king. And number three, the king that we actually need. 
So number one, not the meek and mild king. I'll put the first half of the first verse on screen for you today as we orient ourselves to this text. And it says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. So I've done this before in years past, and, and, and any time I've looked at this text, I can't help but doing this. So I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself today. Try to imagine like we're in this scene. We're there. And maybe to help you with that, let me maybe suggest this to you. Imagine that there's a day coming in the future, not too far from now, where, where you're, you're headed for a trip to Vancouver. It's going to be like a really great trip. You're going to Vancouver, you know, and you might be going to do some shopping, eat at a really good restaurant, but you're going to Vancouver. Or maybe you're heading off on a trip to your hometown when you grew up and you're really excited to go there. Or, or maybe it's Maui, right? Like, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But, but imagine this. Imagine as you're preparing to go and you get the car packed and you're ready to go, imagine if you knew that this was the last trip you'd ever make, that this trip would be the end of the road for you. Can you imagine that? And on top of that, imagine that you're going into this place wherever it may be, and there are actually going to be people there, you know, more of the in-laws than the outlaws, but there are going to be people there who are going to be very excited to see you. And, and, and at least at first, they're going to be, you know, if you stay, overstay, you're welcome, maybe. But they're going to be really excited to see you and have you come. But you also know that there are some people who are not going to be that excited. In fact, they, they kind of wish you wouldn't come. And they've got plans for you if you do come. Can you, can you imagine that? I know, my mind works in very strange ways. So I don't know you about you, but here, here's how I kind of thought about that. What would I do? Well, first of all, I, I think number one is I wouldn't want to know, right? Like, I, I just wouldn't want to know that, right? If that's when my day is coming or whenever it might be, I'd, I'd rather not know that Glenn at the age of 69 and a half, this is what's going to happen on this. I, I don't want to know that. I don't know, maybe some of you would, but I, I, I don't really want to know that. But secondly, if, if I did... I just have to be honest with you. I'm a pretty brave guy in, in most cases, but I have to honest you. I think I would try to avoid that. I would go, oh, that's going to happen if I go there? I'm not going to go. I, I'm smart. I'll take things into my own hands, and I'll, I'll, I'll avoid that. Are you not glad that Jesus didn't do that and that he does not think the way that we think? He knew this. We need to make that very clear and understand that this morning. He knew this. Multiple predictions. How many times did he predict that I will go to Jerusalem, they will beat me, whip me, scourge me, crucify me, I will die, and I will raise myself up on the third day? How many times? At least three that we know of in the Gospels. He predicted it. At first, they were kind of like, oh, that's maybe a metaphor. <laughs> he kept predicting it and predicting it that this would happen. And his actions on this day, as I hope you will see, his actions on this day are clearly evident that he knew this was going to happen. In fact, it's almost like he's asking for it to happen. And so I want to suggest to you that it's kind of absurd when you think about it, how some detractors of the Bible and, and history for that matter suggest that, you know, really what happened to Jesus, he just got a little unlucky. You know? he, he allowed this Messiah complex thing to get a little carried away. His disciples got him all worked up about it, and he started doing things. And at 33 and a half years of age, he, he, you know, he died too young. He, he didn't see it coming. It's just ridiculous that people, people actually say that. 
who apparently read the Bible, and they want to suggest that it's foolishness. It's foolishness. All four Gospels, and we'll look at a few today, provide details about this last weekend of his life. As we learn from the Gospel of Luke, there's an interesting relationship that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke. It's a relationship with a family. You remember them? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? These were like his missional community group, right? He loved this family. If you, if you study it, it's, it's like, yeah, if he was to pick a family to spend the last Sabbath meal with, it would be this family. And that's exactly what he does as he's on, Luke tells us about this, as he's on his way to Jerusalem. On the Friday, he arrives in Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. And of course, Lazarus is the guy who, who Jesus just recently, in recent history, in biblical times in that day, had risen from the dead. And he's there, very much alive, sitting at the dinner with Mary and Martha and Jesus. Well, actually, Mary is up to her usual, right? She's cooking food and her hospitality, and she's doing the serving. And it's an awesome thing to see her doing that. But then Mary is also serving because she takes this very expensive jar of oil, this ointment, and she anoints Jesus with it. And and, and the whole house is filled with this beautiful and wonderful fragrance, which is really, really incredible. It's beautiful. What a last, well, it's not his last supper, but a last Sabbath with a lovely family, right? Well, of course, there was a guy there by the name of Judas, and this drove him crazy right? He saw this, this ointment jar that was worth a lot of money, and he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing wasting this? We could sell that and give it to the poor, the social justice champ that he was, right? Actually, he held the purse strings for the group, right? He was the guy in charge of the money, so we don't really know what his motive and his heart was for what he would do with the proceeds of that oil, but he says it's, it's a waste, Well, Jesus rebukes him, right? He rebukes him. And he says, you leave her alone. This anointing was for and is for the day of my burial. Kind of sounds like he knew what was going to happen, doesn't it? It does. Then we read these words in John's Gospel. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there at Mary and Martha and Lazarus host. They came not only on account of of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Yeah, you you can't have evidence of uh, this guy who raised this guy from the dead. You can't have that kind of evidence around, can you? What was going through their minds? Jesus sees this. He knows this is going on, right? So we see two opposing perspectives, I think, at work on this day or coming up to this Palm Sunday, which is the next day that these events are taking place. We see two opposing perspectives. First, there are those who are clearly not looking forward to Jesus coming for the Passover this year. And so the question is, why? Why would they be so against that? Well, he's very popular, Large crowds are following him. This thing that happened with Lazarus was like, okay, he performed a lot of miracles. This one was over the top. This was unreal. 
but, but it was also Passover. And, and they knew that this, that's the time, that particular time of the year was the time in Jerusalem where if the Messiah was here and coming, this would be when he would show up. And they're like, we're not having this Messiah. And so that's interesting. So they know, as we see here in this, this text, that many Jews, the people whom the chief priests, look, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were supposed to be shepherding these people, caring for these people, pointing these people to the Messiah. They're supposed to be the ones doing this. They know that the people are getting very excited about this Jesus, especially, again, after raising Lazarus. Word like this does spread. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. But it spread. And thousands upon thousands, commentaries and, and historians suggest that a town of about 100,000 people, Jerusalem in that day, expanded and exploded to over a million that week. From all over Galilee, from all over Judea, for the Passover, but also there's this guy who might be there. So John goes on and we see the perspective of these Jews in these words. It says this, the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So it's in John's gospel, not Matthew's, that we actually find out that these branches or these leaves are from palm trees, right? And we hear the same words that are recorded in Matthew, that the people are chanting as he enters the gates, the eastern gates of Jerusalem on Sunday after leaving Bethany. So the contrast, I think, is very real. Um, it's very real at this point, and, and Jesus seems to be good with both sides of this contrast. He knows the religious leaders have it out for him, and he's not going to do anything to satisfy them. If anything, it's like he's going to continue to poke them in the eye with a hot poker, right? He's just going to continue to infuriate them, to add coals to the fire. And the very first thing that he does that infuriates them is that he not only welcomes the acclaim the people have for him, but he, but he seems to be approving of it. He seems to be accepting it and, and going, uh-huh. You're right. This is who I am. That infuriates them. It totally and totally infuriates them. And so, whom they, they listen, this is who they think he is. They, they declare him to be. Look at their words here in John, which are the same as in Matthew. The people are going, Hosanna. Now, that, that particular phrase, that word literally means save now or save us now. So they're crying out to this person to save us. This person, Jesus, as he comes into the town. And then, then, he, then they declare him blessed who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And if you're a chief priest, a Sadducee, a scribe, a Pharisee, any one of the religious leaders in Jerusalem in that day, they're going, no, 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 no. Stop that. Not this guy. Not this one. It's very much Messiah language. And yet, Jesus receives it. He's completely good with it. 
Back in Matthew, we see another example of this that happens just before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. As he's approaching the gates to Jerusalem, two blind men, two blind men cry out to him. So he's left Bethany, right? He's coming, and, and the, the, he's got the mother donkey and the colt, which is, you know, interesting. We'll look at that in a second. But he's coming in, and, and as he's approaching the gates of Jerusalem, two blind men start screaming out at him, and they say this, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, again, the language, right? Son of David, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Now, why would they do that? Well, they want him to get to Jerusalem because if he's the Messiah, something really, really good is going to happen. Forget about these two blind guys. Well, they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I love this. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Followed him. Son of David. Again, this is messianic language. And Jesus not only accepts their revelation of who he is, he proves, listen, he proves he is the one that Isaiah had prophesied. Remember that when he got to preach in his home uh, uh, synagogue? Remember that? It was awesome, right? They loved him at first, right? His words when he opened the scroll from Isaiah were, were these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and look at this and recovering of sight to the blind. Set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's doing right in front of them as he's walking into Jerusalem exactly what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. Giving sight to the blind. This is literal. It's not just a metaphor. It literally happened, but it is a picture, isn't it? God is trying to open up their eyes. Every one of them, even on this day. Even the religious dudes. He's trying to open their eyes. It's merciful. It really is. So these chief priests, along with the Pharisees, are at Lazarus' home, right? They're plotting to kill him. They see this healing and the declaration of the two blind men and, and, and the praises of the crowd and the adulations and the constant cheers of Hosanna, 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 and the level of their hatred and anger towards Jesus. It just amps up and amps up, and they're plotting continues. They've given up on, on Lazarus. Like, what's the point there? This, this is the problem here. It's this guy. We need to deal with him. And listen, Jesus clearly knows this. And he's undeterred. <laughs> he, just, he just keeps going. And then just, this is, again, this is a further on in the day, but just after his triumphant entry, as it's called, what does Jesus do? What what does Jesus do? Well, he does exactly what the Messiah should do if he was arriving this time of year for the Passover. He would go to the temple. And that's what Jesus does after this triumphant entry, right? And we read this in, in verses 12 and 13 after our passage for today. It says this, And Jesus entered the temple. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Meek and mild? He said to them, it is written. There's a very large crowd there. 
commerce is going on, which it shouldn't have been. He's, he's creating havoc. He's on a rampage. All of the religious leaders are there. Hundreds of thousands of people are outside the, the, the temple listening to this. There's a commotion going on. And then he utters, literally, the most remarkable words. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So I think we're, we've gone far enough at this point in point number one. We're not finished, but have we not? Is this really the meek and mild Jesus that is typically presented to us on Palm Sunday? The same man who rides into town on a lowly beast of burden, a mere colt, who enters the temple, ransacking the place, using these words. And listen, you got, you got to, again, transport yourself for a second. When, when he used that word, my house, they would have lost their collective minds. There's only one person who can say that. God. This is the house of God. He's declaring it publicly. It's outrageous. He's not done. It's, it's, it's incredible. He's not done on this day, right? It, the, the temple is crowded with people. They see what's going on here. They see him declare these words. And it goes on in Matthew 21 to say this, and the blind and the lame came to him. Do you think so? <laughs> of course they did. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That word is in the English, not the Greek. It's like full of wrath and fury, faces red. If if they had semi-automatics right there, they would have shot them. They were filled with rage. And they said to him, please hear the mock. Do you hear what these children are saying? Children weren't considered almost even human in some respects in those days. Very low. Do you hear what they're saying? Do do you actually get it, what they're saying? You need to see this, but there's a semicolon after that three-letter word. It's very important. There was a pregnant pause here. Just imagine when when Jesus is replying, he's going, yes. Everybody heard that yes. Yes. It's a pregnant pause. He could have actually said this. Of course I do. But listen. Listen. Are you so blind that you cannot see what all of these people and these children see in me? Even these children? So what's really happening here? What do you think on this day is is really happening, on this day in history, this day of the coronation, the inauguration of our king? What's Jesus really up to, do you think? Well, as we will see and have seen, he, he is, come on, he is the humble, the kind, the loving, 
the generous. He's demonstrated that throughout his whole ministry to children, to, to women also in that culture who were really overlooked as being equal in God's economy and really in everyone's. He really was that kind of person. He really is that. But so far, we've seen, we've almost seen Jesus, I want to suggest to you, daring these people to do what? To kill him. He's daring them. In fact, what Jesus is doing is saying something very important, I think, about what kind of king he really is. He's saying this. Listen, you must, you must, you must either crown me Lord and king or kill me. If it was today, he'd be saying, listen, I'm not interested in your likes on Facebook. I'm really not interested in how many... Facebook friends I have following me. No, I'm either Lord to all of you or nothing. There's no middle ground with Jesus. That's the contrast that I see on display here today. So that's why I I, I made number one, not, not exactly the meek and mild king. He is. Not on that day. It's extremely bold. Point number two, not the expected king. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed. We read this earlier. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So I was thinking about this again. Have you ever personally witnessed a coronation in, in your lifetime in a world? Some, some, some of you might be old enough. Uh, maybe George is. I don't know, but... Uh, I pick on somebody that I know who... Actually, he could hurt me. Um, but he's kind and gentle. Uh, most of us have not seen a royal uh, coronation, right? You might have seen it on video, you know, Queen Elizabeth and, and a coronation. But most of us have probably seen, you know, presidential inaugurations, right? Uh, great pomp and ceremony, especially surrounding the entrance of the leader, uh, often including a big parade, you know, with horses and marching bands and all the rest of it. It's really incredible. The Jewish people actually uh, would not have seen anything like this in recent history, however, but they would have all heard growing up a very familiar story about a coronation like this. 200 years earlier, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus had arrived in Jerusalem after conquering the pagan armies that had oppressed Israel for also centuries. He, too, was welcomed into the city by a crowd waving palm branches. Now, this is in secular historical books and Jewish history, which will tell you this. And he was the start of a royal dynasty that lasted over 100 years. And so what we see here then on on Palm Sunday is the people in that day doing exactly what their, their Jewish folklore would have told them they did when Judas Maccabeus came in, who was their, their reigning king now who'd saved them from the oppression of the pagan armies that they'd been under for hundreds of years. And and so they knew that this was what was to be expected. But what they got with Jesus was not what they expected, was it? At all. 
And, and I'm wondering if Jesus wasn't, now hear me carefully here, performing a little bit of a parody, you know, um, almost a satirical display of what they expected for the purpose of challenging their hearts and, quite frankly, ours today for that matter. After all, those who were the rulers and kings that deserved a triumphal entry like Judas Maccabeus had received typically rode in on the most regal of horses, right? Huge, monstrous beasts snorting as they, you know, carried their victorious king into town, followed by many, many, many other horses and and a militia and army behind this king. This is quite different, this King Jesus. Very, very different. As we read earlier, Jesus had sent two of his disciples. He's in Bethany. He sends them just to a little town, just a little head. He says, by the way, just, just go there, and, and what you're going to find there is you're going to find a mother donkey tied up, and she's going to have a little baby colt beside her. Um, you just go there, and, and, and you just go and take them. And by the way, if anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, well, the Lord needs them. And um, uh, I think it's in uh, Luke's gospel that, that we actually find out that um, Someone does ask them that, and they're like, well, the Lord needs them. And Oh, okay. And, and so what does that prove to us? Well, it shows us a couple things. Number one, again, Jesus is divine. He, he knew this. He also knew that this donkey and her colt were going to be his ride into Jerusalem for the last time. And so he knows what's going to happen. But, but also, it's God showing us in a very interesting way because it's also, we also read a bit of a prophecy there, not a bit, a prophecy from Zechariah, right? About that this is what will happen, that, that he will come in on the colt of a donkey, and humble. And that's where we get this idea that he is, it's humbling for sure. Now, I wonder, what, what, what the people of Israel, how did they miss that, by the way? How did they miss that Jesus would, or the Messiah would be coming in on a coal? I mean, it was there in Zechariah, like 500 years earlier. He wrote that. He prophesied. This is what the Messiah is going to come on. They missed it. Well, maybe they're like some of us today where they're like, well, that's a metaphor. <laughs> it's a picture of something to do with that day. But clearly, our king is not going to come like that. Not the king that we expect or that we think we need. So he's not the king that they expected. It's almost like there's this parody. There's this Old Testament scripture fulfillment, which is really, really key. So what did they expect? What do, what do you think they thought that they needed most, right? Well, the answers to both questions are simply this. They expected and wanted a ruler, a king, that would meet their needs and in the way that they wanted their needs met. It's human nature. They wanted what was best for them. So remember again, they all knew the story of Maccabeus and his triumphant arrival. So why did they treat him in the same way that they're treating Jesus? They treated him that way because he overthrew these terrible pagan armies. And so what did they want from Jesus? Overthrow the Romans. Good news that you're here. This is worse than what happened with Judas Maccabeus. The Romans are terrible. 
This is what, what, so, and now the people of Israel, what did they want? They wanted another strong and powerful ruler to come and free them from the oppressive Romans. You do that for us, Jesus of Nazareth, and we're yours. Sort of. One last time, let's put ourselves into the scene, if you can. Imagine for a second, seeing through the eyes of Jesus, coming into Jerusalem, thousands of people, chaos, noise, dust and dirt, and you're looking through his eyes as he sits on this colt. What do you see if you're Jesus? What do you see? Well, I think we see what he knows to be human nature, right? What's your response, my response, typically, uh, virtually every modern today, when every, to every virtually modern day ruler who, who we greet with such acclaim? You know, when our prime minister was elected, how many people were like, this is going to be awesome, right? Or the, the president of the United States, okay, I'm not going to go there. Um, you know, like people were super excited, right? And, oh, yes, life is going to be better. We got the guy we want, the guy we need. And then how long are they in office? Are they ruling before we're like, didn't fulfill that promise. Things, things, our human nature is such that, like, if you don't give me what I need when I need it and want it, and in the way that I need it and want it, done with you, out with you, who's next? It's human nature. I, 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 Jesus, look, he, he came into the world because he loves us, right? He went to the cross because he loves us. But he's God, and he knows us, and he knows our hearts. And I'm sure when he's looking out, he's seeing these people, and he's recognizing that they're all for him in this moment. But in just five days, the Hosannas will turn to what? Crucify him. Crucify him. I wonder if that isn't exactly the problem that most people today have with Jesus. Either crown me, King, Lord of your life, or kill me. With what people have with placing their faith and trust in Jesus today, isn't one of the the main objections that most of us have had or most people have today with Jesus is this whole thing about his exclusivity? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What? Really, that, that sounds rather exclusive. Yes, Lord, or there's no middle ground with Christ. There's no middle ground. So, so there's just too much for many people, even today. There were too, that was too much for people in that day. I mean, many people today are like, so, so really, I mean, so you're telling me that I, what I can't have is like, listen, Jesus, there are a lot of things that you preach in the Sermon on the Mount, social justice, love for all, you know, don't judge, you know. I mean, I love that. I'd like to put that on my tool belt right here. But, you know, I've read some Buddha you know, and some other things. And I like, are you saying to me that there aren't a number of different philosophies and religions out there that could be on my tea, my tool belt that could, you know, give me my needs and my wants and that, yeah, I, I want Jesus, but are you saying to me every other religion, every other way of life, every other philosophy is wrong and will not lead to salvation to be with God? Yes. Crown him? Or, I think every Christian struggles with that. You don't have to be an unbeliever to struggle with that. 
We all struggle with that in the growth of our faith and life and calling with Jesus when it appears like he's not acting like the Savior that we expected, the promises that we expected <laughs> that would happen in our lives. You know, like you promised you would fix my husband, right? You promised you would fix my children. You promised you would give me the job, that you would provide me with the finances. You know, if I just gave a little bit, you know, for that tithe thing's kind of, that's kind of harsh. But, you know, if I did something that you would, and it's not happening, and... Functionally, as a Christian, unless we are putting him in the place and crowning him as Lord and King, what are we doing? We're crowning ourselves. So what did the people think they needed from Jesus in that day? Well, they thought what they needed most was a powerful ruler to bring judgment down on the evil Roman Empire because in their minds anyway, they were the ones who were responsible for ruining this world. If we just get rid of them... Everything will be good. But (laughs) what they really needed, however, and I know that those of you who know the gospel know this is true, what we have all needed is someone powerful enough to come down and bear God's judgment against us first. We're the ones that are ruining this world. The self-righteous and religious, the... The pagan, the, we're the ones ruining this world. What they and we all need most is to be pardoned, to be forgiven by our God so that we can be reconciled to God. And please listen, we need that to be accomplished first. Before he comes back to end evil and injustice in this world once and for all without ending all of us. Number three, in conclusion, the king that we need. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so after the triumphant entry and reception, they, they, gave, they gave him in hopes that he might be the one that they thought he would be. We read some people asking, Well, who is this? Who is this guy? Everybody seems kind of worked up. But you can, almost, you can almost sense like within half an hour, an hour, a couple of hours, as he goes by, and, and nothing, there's no lightning, thunder, <laughs> like there's no troops following him. It, it, it's, it's almost a little bit like, yeah, it's a prophet. You know, he was born in Nazareth, this little tiny backwater town. What, anything good ever come out of there? Galilee. He's a Galilean. I think it was last week or the week before I saw a quote by, yes, his name is Pastor Tim Keller. Um, It was related to prayer, but I believe it applies well here. He said this, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives. Let me say that again. If we knew what what God knows, and he knows everything, we would ask for exactly what he gives, not what we think we need or want. So God knew, Jesus knew that what we needed most was for him to come into our broken world 
inaugurate his kingdom rule to save us from oppression. But listen, not by taking power through brutal force, through killing, but by first giving up power, his power, and being killed. This is not the king that they expected. It's the king they needed. This is the king they needed. Jesus is going to rule and reign. He is ruling and reigning through weakness so that we can all be saved by admitting that we are weak. We're not strong. And admitting that our greatest need is we need a savior who is also king. Palm Sunday, then, I think for you and us today is this, is this parody. It's, it's, it's almost even like a parable, uh, maybe, that, that parallels life itself. It's this constant contrast and struggle between what we think we need most and what God knows we need and has already provided for you and for me in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you know that fully in your hearts? I certainly hope you do. If you don't yet, I understand. That's a big thing. Pray. Go to the Word of God. And I think you're going to see that that's what he is offering to us, what he knows is best for us, the king that you and I really need. So do you know how this all ends? This is an amazing, amazing true story that happened on that day. John was taken up into heaven and shown some things by Jesus that would happen at the end of time. In the fourth last chapter of the Bible, John recorded these things that Jesus revealed to him about himself and about the end. I'm just going to read these words and then we're going to pray. John writing and saying this, then I saw heaven opened up and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Look at this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. There is a name written. King of kings, Lord of lords. Three times he predicted he would go to Jerusalem and die on the cross in your place and my place for your sins. It happened. This too will happen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray with me, would you?